You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org. Good afternoon. Welcome to the RSA. I'm Julian Bugini. I'm here. I'm very pleased to be here to chair this event today because I, I reviewed the book that Hugo Mercier to my left wrote with Dan Sperber, The Enigma of Reason. And it's one of those books which is not, not that common, unfortunately, which, you know, it really sort of shakes up your thinking and sort of t- turns things not completely on their head, but sort of like certainly at a completely different angle to the way you see them. Uh, the kind of audience here, I'm sure, like me, you've absorbed all the Daniel Kahneman stuff about System 1 and System 2, and we kind of think we now understand uh, the way reasoning works and you know, essentially a lot of rational processing is a kind of after-the-event justification and it's all done by those hot subconscious processes. And that kind of means that essentially, you know, rationality, we're not very reasonable at all. Rationality is a bit of a myth. And, you know, we're all of us a bit more sophisticated than that, hopefully, in this room. But that, that broad picture is the one we've all kind of absorbed. We can all quote chapter and verse on some of those key studies. Um, what we're going to find out today is how... It's a bit more complicated than that, which it always is. And I think it's really wonderful. I mean, not being an experimental scientist myself, I have a kind of envy at the way in which science can continue to surprise us by this. People working away in labs, moving on understanding in, in, in ways. Hugo is a cognitive scientist at the French National Centre for Scientific Research. Hugo Mercier. Um, so thank you very much, Julian, for this introduction. And thank you for inviting me. Um, so, uh, throughout history, thinkers have held rather uh, very kind of opposite views of how reason works and whether it works well or not. So, to give you um, two extreme examples, on the one hand, you can have someone like uh, René Descartes, who granted reason the power of judging correctly and of distinguishing the true from the false. And on the other hand, you have someone like uh, Martin Luther, who had a slightly more colorful language and who, for instance, said... Uh, reason is by nature a harmful whore, but she shall not harm me if only I resist her. Ah, but she is so comely and glittering. See to it that you hold reason in check and do not follow her beautiful cogitations. Throw dirt in her face and make her ugly. So, as you can see, you know, not everybody has agreed on how good uh, reason is, whether it works for the, for the best or not. But something that actually both of these thinkers and, and most, of, uh, most other thinkers have agreed on is that reason is quite powerful. In a way, even in, in Luther, you can feel that it is precisely because reason is powerful that it has to be uh, feared and, uh, and really kind of, uh, people have to be careful of it. So in a way, you also find that in, in the work of many contemporary um, cognitive and experimental psychologists. So if you take the work of, uh, for instance, Daniel Kahneman, uh, Jonathan Evans, or um, Keith Stanovich, and many others who have worked on the uh, dual process models you know, this distinction between intuition and reason that uh, Julian mentioned, in a way you still find some respect for the power of reason. So this is, in a way, the kind of typical analogy uh, you can use for dual process models of the mind, in that uh, the mind would be this iceberg, and the vast majority of the mind would be the uh, submerged part of the iceberg, um, you know, made up of unconscious processes that we are not aware of, at best, we can be aware of their outcome. So, for instance, if you see someone for the first time, we have intuitions about how honest and how competent that person might be. We don't know why we feel that way, but you know, certainly we have these intuitions. And, uh, and indeed, the work of, of Daniel Kahneman, Amos Dversky, and, and many other psychologists 
have shown that these intuitions can be quite biased and can lead to quite systematic mistakes. And so in, in these common uh, dual process uh, theories of the mind, that's one of the reasons why we have the tip of the iceberg, which is made up of conscious processes, uh, which includes reason. And reason then would have as one of its main functions to check and to correct the biases of the intuitions. So that's what we've called the um, standard or the uh, intellectualist uh, view of reason, which states really that the main function of reason would be to help uh, lone reasoners correct their mistaken intuitions. So, you know, you can picture you know, Descartes sitting alone in a room and trying to figure out the whole of mathematics and philosophy on his own, or, or kind of more mundanely. You know, that's, that's kind of what you, you hope reason to achieve when you're reasoning before you're deciding whom to vote for, what car to buy. You know, you want reason to help you make better decisions and uh, reach uh, sander opinions. So I'm now going to give you one of the many reasoning problems that um, psychologists use to kind of to probe reason and to try to understand how it works. That it has been used quite a bit to kind of to bolster this standard uh, view of reason. So uh, uh, it's an American problem, really, that there was the bad and bold, so I've tried to adapt it as best as I could. Uh, <laughs> a tea and a biscuit cost uh, one, one pound and ten pence together, and the tea costs uh, one pound more than the biscuit. So what can we conclude from that? Um, first of all, this is clearly not taking place in London. Uh, but more, um, more specifically, can we, can we say something about how much does the biscuit cost? Um, so unfortunately, I don't really have the time uh, to let those who would be so inclined try to uh, solve that problem. Uh, I know some, you know some people like that. Um, so I'm going to you know, give you the answer and also tell you why that problem is interesting for psychologists. And if it's interesting, it's because uh, there is an intuitive answer, which is 10 pence, that I would guess most of you, if not all of you, have thought of, uh, which is wrong. Uh, because if uh, the biscuit costs 10 pence, then the tea would cost $1 more, which is $1.10. And the two of them together would cost $1.20, which is not what you want. Um, so instead, the biscuit has to cost 5 pence. Uh, then the tea costs uh, 1 pen and 5 pence. And the two of them together cost one pound and uh, ten pence, and everything works. So uh, the reason that this, you know, this kind of problem is so fascinating, except that you know, we, we like to see people failing, but <laughs> it's that uh, it tells us that you, know, you have this wrong intuition. You have you know, it's kind of this picture of the iceberg. You have the intuition that is driving you towards the wrong answer, the ten pence answer. And then thanks to reason, you can realize that ten pence is wrong and you can uh, reach the correct answer of five pence. So that's, that seems to be the perfect illustration for this um, standard view of uh, reason. The problem with this um, is that uh, most people don't reach that correct answer. So, you know, I'm sure most of you would have, you just didn't have the time. But um, if you give that problem to most uh, groups of participants, so you know, typically college students, uh, who clearly, they know the math to solve this, you know, you know undoubtedly, um, and still most of them fail. Most of them stick to the uh, 10 pence answer. And so that's the first problem for this standard view of reason, which says that you know, reason should help you correct mistaken intuitions. And on that problem and many, many other problems like this one, it just fails, even though all the tools that you need to get at the right answer are kind of really within your reach without any, any problem. And actually, things get worse if you look at why reason is failing to get you at the right answer. So if you take the standard view of reasoning with this function of helping us correct mistaken intuitions, then what you, want, what you would want uh, reason to do 
is to make sure that you have good reasons for your intuitions, maybe see if there are some reasons that might go against your intuitions, maybe see if there are alternatives that may be better uh, than what you thought of initially. That's how it should proceed if that was really what it was you know, trying to achieve. Reason doesn't do this. Instead, reason has a massive uh, confirmation bias, or uh, what I think we should call the my side bias, which means that when people are faced with this type of problem, or really when you reason about anything, if you have some kind of preconceived idea, some intuition about the problem, then reason is going to mostly find arguments and justifications for that intuition. So this is what people do when you give them the problem. They think of 10 pence, and then if they reason about the problem at all, mostly they will find reasons why 10 pence is the right answer rather than kind of critically examining whether that is the case or not. So here we have a mechanism that does not perform its supposed function very well at all and that fails to do so because it works in the exact opposite way it should be working to, uh, to perform that function. It's really like you know, the worst possible design you could imagine. And so this is why um, Dan Sperber and I have been working for about for uh, more than 10 years now on developing an alternative account of reason, and in particular, of the function of reason. This account of reason um, suggests that really reason serves, human reason serves two main functions, which are both um, social functions. The first function is rooted in cooperation. So um, compared to any other primate, um, humans cooperate to a really an amazing degree, you know, we couldn't have that many chimps in a room without basically them killing each other. Um, so I hope that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, you might disagree with me. But so. Um, and uh, so we cooperate very well, which is that's something we do extremely well, um, even if it's to fight each other sometimes, unfortunately. Um, but cooperation is evolutionarily tricky because it's always tempting to, have, you know, to be a free rider. You just benefit from everybody else cooperating without really uh, paying, your, paying your dues. And so for, for a cooperative system to work, one of the best solutions is to have reputation. So we keep track of who is honest, who is competent, who is trustworthy, who is a good cooperator, uh, so that you can know who to cooperate with uh, in a way that is quite um, efficient. Uh, but maintaining a good reputation is hard because oftentimes we do things that might seem stupid or that might seem immoral, but they're not. They're just, you know, it's hard for people to know why we do the things we do. So... That's when it becomes extremely handy uh, to provide justifications for your actions. And then to evaluate the justifications other people give you. So, I don't know, to give you a, a trivial example, um, you know, coming here, I had asked that maybe I should use my own computer instead of the computer here because I was afraid that some of the animations might not work. And so if I just ask the organizers, Look, can I use my computer? You know, maybe it's, it's a bit rude uh, because, you know, they, they prefer having their own setup. And so they may think I'm kind of difficult, you know, why does he want this? But if I tell them, look, I've had problems in the past with animation, so, you know, maybe we should do this, then everything is fine. You know, they can judge whether I have a good reason for my, for my, for my request, and uh, everything can work quite smoothly. So that would be, uh, for us, the first uh, function of reason, to justify our actions so that other people can understand them better and they can evaluate us more accurately. And the other function would be uh, rooted in, in the evolution of communication. Um, like cooperation, communication is evolutionarily a tricky business. Because as soon as you start co communicating, uh, then that opens the door for manipulation, for lying, for deception. 
And so people who receive information, communicated information, have to be wary of uh, you know, what they accept. And so that's why we have uh, trust. So we can, you know, we can decide who to trust. We can keep track of who is trustworthy, of who is competent. But that's not quite enough. Um, so for instance, we have this new theory of reason. And we've talked with our colleagues uh, about that theory. And if we just come to our colleagues and we tell them, look, uh, most of what you think about reason is wrong. Um, we have this new account that's just really great. And we just say this. Uh, it doesn't work. You know, <laughs> we've, we've tried. It just, uh, it just doesn't work. And so, and that's true of you know, kind of complex disagreement like this one, but to take a much more trivial example, if I'm home and I think there is no orange juice in the fridge, and my wife tells me there is orange juice in the fridge, you know, I, I trust my wife with, you know, my, with my kids, with my life, but I'm not going to believe her. <laughs> but then if she tells me, you know, I, I just bought orange juice and put it there, then everything is fine. So if you can't, it's hard to realize because we so take it for granted that we can exchange reasons with one another as soon as we disagree, it's hard to realize how, how poor our social lives would be uh, if we couldn't do it. Basically, if we couldn't justify ourselves, if we couldn't exchange arguments, it, it would be extremely hard to function um, socially. Yeah, sorry. Um, so we think these are the two main uh, functions of reason in this, uh, what we call now an interactionist um, um, theory of reason. So the main functions would be to exchange um, justifications and to exchange arguments. So that means... On the one hand, being able to produce justifications and arguments, and on the other hand, to be able to evaluate other people's justifications and arguments. So, sorry. Um, so now, you know, some of you might think, okay, well, so we have a, a pretty enough um, kind of evolutionary just or stories. Uh, now, how do you, you know, how can you tell whether our evolutionary hypotheses are any good? You know, are they are they right? And so to test this. Unfortunately, we don't have to go back in time and to check whether you know, how exactly our ancestors were reasoning. We can see how reasoning works now, and from the, feature, from the features it has now, from how it works now, we can try to see what is uh, the most likely, its most likely function or functions. And so in particular, I think it's quite useful uh, to distinguish these two sides of reason I was talking about, how we produce reasons, either to justify our actions or our beliefs or to convince others, and how we evaluate other people's reasons and justifications. And I'm going to look at two, um, two features that these two, kind of, these two um, um, attributes of reasoning might have, one which is how biased these mechanisms should be, and the other how exigent uh, they should be regarding the reasons that are, uh, under, uh, that are being produced or evaluated. So in terms of bias, I think one of the most interesting uh, predictions maybe of our theory is that if you look at how we produce reason, if you think about a mechanism that should convince other people, uh, it should be biased. You're not going to convince anyone by giving them arguments for their point of view or against yours. So this my side bias, which has really kind of puzzled psychologists for, for quite a while now, makes a lot of sense. It's actually an adaptive, an adaptive uh, feature of reasoning rather than a bug. It's something that you expect of a well-functioning uh, mechanism if it works for argumentation and justification. Now, a somewhat more surprising, I think, prediction is that actually we think reasoning should be relatively lazy. So you might think that if we posit that the function of reason is to um, convince others, then we should all be very good at creating kind of long, sophisticated, um, you know, convoluted arguments, like, you know, like a lawyer or maybe a politician. And clearly we're not that. 
you know, kind of putting, putting forward, you know, very long, um, sophisticated arguments is a provisional skill that, you know, you can learn, but no one does it really spontaneously. So why don't we predict that that happens? And the reason we don't predict that is that for us, reasoning evolved to work in a dialogic setting when you're actually interacting with someone. And when you're interacting with someone, putting forward, you know, like a you know, half-hour plea is not really the best way to, to go forward. Uh, you won't have many friends if you keep doing this. Um, instead, you can start a conversation with a, you know, a, a kind of mediocre or kind of superficial argument. And then if that doesn't work, the other person will tell you why it doesn't work. And you can reply to this. And you can adjust your conversation to exactly the counter-arguments that are raised by the other person. And in the end, things work fine. That is, not only is it less costly than trying to you know, build up a complex argument in the first place, but it's just it's more efficient because you can really uh, specifically address the reasons that the other person, the specific interlocutor you're facing, has for uh, disagreeing with you. So on the whole, this fits quite well with what we know of how reasoning produces reason. So if you ask people to produce arguments for their point of view, first, or even if you ask people to reason about anything that they have some kind of a priori point of view about, they will overwhelmingly find reasons that support their point of view, so that works fine. And most of these reasons are not going to be great. Uh, they're going to be quite, you know, we've all read internet comments, um, and we've, some of us have written internet comments. <laughs> and so if you don't have that feedback, if you don't have someone else to, to push you, to, kind of, to force you to develop better arguments, usually it remains relatively shallow. And there are exceptions, but that's kind of the rule. Um, now if we turn to how do we evaluate other people's reasons. Basically, we should have the opposite pattern. So first of all, we should be demanding. Uh, because when you evaluate some, somebody else's reasons, you want to make sure that you're not convinced for bad reasons. You want to make sure that you don't think, well, actually, you know, what you did was great, even though what, what they did was completely stupid or just you know, completely evil. Um, or you don't want to accept a conclusion if the arguments that support it are you know, complete sophistry. So you should be careful to only accept good enough reasons. Actually, we have a nice experiment that uh, contrasts that in which we, we trick participants. You're not going to ever trust a psychologist after today. <laughs> we, we trick participants into evaluating arguments that they had produced as if they were someone else's. So, and we had about half of our participants who really believed they were evaluating someone else's arguments, even though they had just written, written the arguments themselves like five minutes before. So don't, don't, tell, don't ask us how we did it. But, um, and then people rejected about half of these arguments. So arguments that they had thought good enough to justify their own opinion two minutes before, now if they thought there were someone else's arguments, they're like, nah. Um, so this is a good illustration of how kind of this asymmetry in how uh, people evaluate reasons when they are their own, and then it's kind of, yeah, kind of everything goes. And when it's someone else's arguments, and then we're much more careful. And finally, uh, when it comes to you know, the kind of the bias aspect of evaluating other people's reason, our theory actually predicts that we should be relatively unbiased. That is, even if an argument challenges your point of view, even if it challenges you know, your cherished beliefs, you should evaluate it as objectively as possible. So that's our prediction. And in a way, interestingly, I just kind of thought of that earlier, this is, I think this is why uh, Martin Luther is so angry at reason. is because he sees all these arguments that challenge his faith and he, he cannot help himself but to recognize their strength, and that's what he hates. I mean, if you know, if he didn't have that intuitive that, that pull towards these good arguments, then he would he wouldn't care at all about reason. But he feels the strength of that of that pull, 
And that is what bothers him about reason, even though these arguments are really challenging um, everything he holds dear. So there's quite a bit of, uh, a bit of evidence as well that uh, suggests that indeed we're actually better than we think at, um, at evaluating other people's arguments. I, I can, uh, weirdly enough, so if you look at the standard theory of reasoning, um, they have no they have no qualm with that. They should be fine with that, with saying that we're you know we're good at evaluating other people's arguments. You know they should they should find that weird. That's not what they predict at all. But they should be fine predicting this. But in, in our experience, tell, you know, talking to psychologists, this is the thing that people don't believe, even though that's what they should be predicting. But you know, um, and so to give you some of the of the best evidence that we're actually quite good at evaluating others uh, other people's arguments and, and justifications. I'm going to, to present some data uh, that we gathered, so other people had gathered you know, similar data before, but this is kind of the way we did it is, I think, quite neat, uh, in which we asked people to solve that problem I um, presented to you earlier, the one with the, the tea and the biscuits. It was a French version, so it was a baguette and a bonbon. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, and so, first of all, uh, we, we kind of looked at how many people got it right. So they had five minutes to solve it, which is, you know, quite a bit of time to tackle these kind of problems. And these people were not in great form that day. I think it was like two out of 31 or something got it right. So the vast majority of them got the problem wrong. They gave the 10 uh, cents answer. And then we also asked them how confident they were in their answer. So they had a scale between uh, 0 and 10, and they could rate how sure they were that they had it right. And they're pretty sure they had it right, so <laughs> even though they didn't. Um, so, and the person there who is in dab, like, like eight out of ten, so it was really not very strong dab. Um, so imagine then, so the experiment took place in a, in a, you know, in a room a bit like this one, and, and then we asked participants to turn towards their neighbors and to talk with them to see if they could, if they disagreed or not about the answer, and if they disagreed to try to reach a consensus. And so, here you have, you know, it's kind of tricky because you have like a very very small minority of the participants who got it right. And they're faced with an, overwhelming, uh, sorry, with an overwhelming majority who not only all got it wrong in the same way, but they're extremely confident that they got it right. So, you know, will they manage to convince their peers? So that's the setup. Uh, so that's, you know, the classroom. Each square is one participant. So imagine it could be one of you. Um, the black squares are just kind of empty seats. Uh, as you can guess, the two uh, green squares are those two participants who had gotten it right after about five minutes of solitary reasoning. And all the other red ones are those who had gotten it wrong. And then they had about um, 10 or 15 minutes uh, where they could reason. And every minute, we were kind of asking them what they thought was the right answer so we could track uh, what was happening during the discussion. So that worked, that worked well. I mean, uh, let me tell you, as, as far as psychology experiments are concerned, this is nice. Um, it doesn't always work that well. Um, but on the whole, um, this pattern of you know, people who have the right answer being able to convince those who have the wrong answer is extremely robust. It is the most, maybe the most robust thing I know in experimental psychology. Um, just to kind of convince you of that, I'm going to give you, show you a few graphs. Uh, so in all of these graphs, on, on that axis, you have the ratio of group to individual performance. So if you are at one there, it means that the groups, so it's, in, in these cases, we're comparing small groups of about four or five individuals to individuals. And so if the ratio is at one, it means that the groups do as well as the individuals on their own. Uh, if the ratio is at two, the groups do twice as well as the individuals, etc. So the fact that there is nothing below one tells you that the groups never underperform the individuals. And this is just to show you, I don't know if you can see what's at the bottom there, but um, to show you that uh, across the, 
across the you know, wide age range, there is a, a strong improvement in, in performance. So even in five-year-olds, when you give them tasks that you know, they can tackle, and you take a five-year-old who gets it right and a five-year-old who gets it wrong, the five-year-old who gets it right will usually convince the five-year-old who gets it wrong. And five-year-olds are not the easiest population to convince ever, uh, but uh, it actually works pretty well. And this is also true uh, across the world. So this is just three countries, but as far as I can tell, no one has found a, a culture in which uh, you don't find that pattern. Um, so the Maya there are um, a group of uh, traditional, uh, traditional population in Guatemala. So something that is just about kind of as distant as you can imagine from kind of college undergrads, uh, which are our typical population. Um, so all of these were kind of logical or mathematical problems which had a clear kind of good answer. Uh, but you find similar patterns, even if uh, less strong. Um, if you look at a wide variety of other um, types of problems that people might face, if you look at light detection, at forecasting, at biology problems, medical diagnosis, uh, judicial decisions, in all of these cases, if you put people, uh, so you know, in that case it can be doctors or jurists, um, or you know, people doing, uh, making um, political or economic forecasts, if you put them together and you let them talk with each other, they will make better decisions. This is really something that works quite well. And so you have a few requirements, so people have to disagree with each other to start with, otherwise you don't have really a felicitous argumentation. Um, it's better if the groups are not too large. You know, obviously there are some constraints, but on the whole it works, really, it works extremely well. And interestingly, it also works well in, in, in kind of what we could call maybe kind of softer settings. So in school, um, collaborative learning is extremely efficient and it helps, uh, it can help uh, pupils learn better the materials they are exposed to. Um, in jury rooms, um, so it doesn't always work uh, exactly as in 12 Angry Men, but it seems as if deliberation really does help uh, jury reach better verdicts. Um, and even when people talk about politics, so in the, in the field of delibera de oh, sorry, deliberative democracy, uh, many experiments have been done in which uh, they bring in citizens and they have, have them talk about policy. And on the whole, this works well. So the, it's hard to tell whether, you know, what is the right policy. But after the discussion, people tend to be uh, better informed. So they have kind of more, kind of well, you know, better formed opinions. They better understand why other people disagree with them. And they tend to kind of converge towards some kind of average, uh, average view. So um, to wrap up. Um, our thesis is that uh, reason, it's not this kind of homunculus that people often think of that would kind of oversee all the rest of the mind and, and kind of fix everything. It's just another one of the many specialized cognitive mechanisms that humans are endowed with. Um, its main functions are social. They are the exchanges of justifications and the exchange of reasons and of, of arguments. Uh, on the whole, it does this very well. And I think it does this much better than people give it credit for. Argumentation works very, very, very well. Um, but by contrast, when we try to do other things with reason, like really try to uh, make, better decision, sorry, make better decisions on our own, in many cases it doesn't really work or it can even backfire. Thank you. Thanks very much, Hugo. There's, there's so much I'd like to talk about, really. The, the, this idea that reason works best dialogically is, is very interesting for me, and philosophy is my background, um, in that, you know, I see the big battle in philosophy between Plato and Aristotle, really. Aristotle, Plato had, in some ways, the more idealised idea of what reason is, and Aristotle was more pragmatic and empirical. But actually, Plato had more of a dialogic view. He wrote in the dialogues, and Aristotle 
perhaps as the beginning of the idea of the, the lone thinker. But this dialogic thing, you did say at the end how conditions have to be right. So why don't you say a little bit more about where those conditions break down? Because when you were showing that grid, I was thinking about the, the election campaign we've got at the moment. I say everyone's doing what they're supposed to do. People are offering lazy, self-serving arguments, right? And other people are being more objective and unbiased and critical. But we don't, we don't generally think that's resulting in a really good, rational, political debate. So is that because your model's wrong or because the conditions... Are, exactly. <laughs> What's wrong with the conditions for this political discourse which don't allow the dialogic thing, which should be the great strength of democracy and the open society, to work well? Depends on what, what debates we're talking about. So if you're talking about the, you know, the televised debates that you know, like the one we, we could see, uh, we could watch last night, it doesn't work because um, these people don't have any incentive to convince each other. They're trying to convince an audience that they don't know very well, that they cannot interact with, and so none of the conditions for good argumentation are fulfilled when it comes to them convincing the you know the hundreds of thousands of people who are facing their TV. Um, now, if we turn to conversation between, between citizens, um, I think it works better than people give it credit for. So if you, when you talk with your friends, with your colleagues about, about politics, if you talk about specific policy, it actually, in many cases, it kind of works. So you might not change your mind the whole way, because you often have many reasons to hold such and such belief, but you might change your mind a little bit in the direction that the person is arguing for. One of the other things I really liked um, about your book, in fact, I've, I've already quoted it in a draft that I, something I'm writing, is about what log how, how logic fits in here. Because on the traditional picture, the one that philosophers are taught, logic represents, as it were, the, the highest form of reasoning. You know, it's reason that's most it's purest. Um, now, I want to partly want to check. I've got you right on this, but what you seem to be suggesting is that actually, logic, far from being sort of like hyper rigorous. In a sense, what it does is it doesn't so much reveal the logical relations between assumptions as exaggerate them. It, 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 now, so, so what, say a little bit more about that. Why is, why is logic not actually you know, just a heuristic tool, basically? So yeah, in, in, a, in, in our perspective, logic um, is just a way of, of making your arguments clearer and, and maybe more convincing. But it doesn't change. The basic mechanisms we have to evaluate arguments have nothing to do with logic. Um, and and when I think when, when something that makes it quite clear is that you can have arguments about anything. Um, so it, basically, most of the intuitions we have, we can turn them into arguments. So if you, if you smell the milk and the milk smells bad, you have an intuition that you shouldn't drink it. Uh, and then you can turn that into an argument when you shouldn't drink the milk because it smells bad. Um, so most of these things, so I mean, reason is, is this huge thing, is this huge domain that uh, is kind of much, much broader than any logic you can imagine. And even if in logic, philosophers and logicians have developed many different types of logic, um, it, still, it still doesn't encompass the richness of our intuitions and of everything we can really reason about. I mean, that's the point, isn't it? That the actual real-life decision-making, you have to take into account all sorts of um, things to do with the context and the subtleties and all sorts of shades. To create a logical argument, you need to strip it down to X, Y, Z. And so that, that's why it's, kind of, it's, always, it's always a simplification. And in a way, sometimes it's helpful because it can help you get your message across. Uh, but it's not logic that is doing the hard work. So when you, when you understand an argument, um, if it's presented logically, it might help you understand it. But really, the evaluation is done by the semantic of the argument, the content of the argument, rather than its logical form. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the um, things you stress in the book frequently, which I quite like, is that uh, we're used to seeing a lot of, understand a lot of features of reasoning as well, bugs, 
as you like. You say they're not bugs, actual features. They, they have a purpose. But there was one, the one I think the, the biggest reservation I had about the argument was you're making a lot about reason having an adaptive function, right? So reason has evolved in a certain way to work in the social context for persuasion and for communication, building a trust, etc., etc. But th- things aren't constrained by how they evolved, have they? And there, and there is a sense in which we, ha- you know, we can now use reason in other ways. And I wonder whether you sort of understate that a bit. I mean, for example, I thought there was a slight irony in the sense that the book, you present your arguments in the form of a book. The book is read by me as an individual. I read it, and I'm persuaded. I was totally persuaded by the book, but I did that. Just myself responding to your book. I wasn't in dialogue. I wasn't in persuasion. So do, do, do you think, you know, that if, if there, there is still this role for this kind of private, careful reasoning, uh, despite the fact that's not what it evolved for? Yeah, and indeed, um, uh, there are contexts in which, in, in which private reasoning can work well, and as you pointed out in, our, in, in your review, mathematics is one of them. Uh, because... Uh, in mathematics, you can you can anticipate other people's counterarguments relatively easily because everybody has the same axioms to work with, and pretty much the same intuitions at a, you know, among experts. And so it's it's possible to anticipate what other people might think and to reason relatively objectively in that domain. Um, it's much harder when you're thinking about politics. And I would still I would still I would still suggest that if we had uh, spent like five hours together, I would still have done a better job of convincing you than if you'd read the book. But I, we know we can't spend five hours, which each of our reader, I hope, we have enough readers that we can do that. <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's a good kind of compromise between you know, how many people you can reach and how, you know, how, how well you can convince them. Going back to the, the first question about the politics, this dialogic thing, is, is there not... It seems to be quite deeply optimistic about this, actually, the book, because it suggests, as you say, reason actually is powerful if we use it correctly. And do you... Have you been thinking about how we might be able to improve the conditions for the use of public reason in a way to create better decisions? Yeah, I mean, so the use of proper deliberation in, in institutions is something that is probably helpful. So there, you know, the example I've probably worked the most on is, is, uh, is in schools, so it's not exactly politics, but uh, it's quite clear, and I mean, it's work that long predicts our theory that if you get pupils to talk with each other, they will, they will do better in a variety of tasks. And I think, you know, many of us, you know, hate meetings. Uh, but uh, if they're well done, they can be quite useful. So, you know, you want to you do that right. Um, so I think there's quite a bit of room for improvement if we better understand the cognitive mechanisms that are at play. And when it comes to politics, I think the main issue is just one of, of lack of interest. So it's not so much how we argue about it. It's the fact that most of us are not really interested. So us, maybe, you know, think of a more inclusive us than just this room, maybe, but... Uh, most of us are not interested in politics, and, and many political scientists have argued that it's quite rational, given that your vote never really matters. Um, so, you know, you can spend a lot of effort reading all that information, but it, in the end, you know, kinda, what is it for? So it's very, in a way, you can see all that, all that investment in, in, in getting information about politics as something that is essentially altruistic. Um, and then, you know, if you're doing it, then you might as well do it well. So that means engaging with people who disagree with you, um, so that you can, you know, make sure that your beliefs are actually challenged, and that if they, if they, you know, if they hold the confrontation with other people, then they might actually be good. Well, let's open it up. I see there's somebody. There. We'll take one there, and then the next one there after that. So let's start here. Yeah. Thanks. Um, it's just at the end you said that um, it's used in a specialized, as a specialized cognitive mechanism, but isn't that mainly in the conscious sphere? Given that a lot of cognition happens unconsciously. 
a lot of, of reasoning goes on unconsciously as well. So what reason does basically is it gives you intuitions about reasons. So when, you're, when I'm giving you an argument, um, immediately, if it's a kind of normal, not overly complex argument, immediately you have an intuition about whether uh, it's a good or bad argument. So you take a classic example. If, if you tell people, you know, the Descartes cogito, uh, I think, therefore I am, most people think it's a good argument. But no one knows why it's a good argument. You have an intuition that I think, therefore I am makes sense, but that's an intuition. And why, that's a good, why we have that intuition is completely unconscious, as unconscious as why you think that someone you meet for the first place is trustworthy or not. So reasoning, as any other cognitive mechanism, is mostly unconscious. We're conscious of the output, which is this feeling or this kind of intuition that a given reason is good or bad, but we don't know where that comes from. So some of the assessment is, is the assessment conscious, though. When you, when you actually assess the argument afterwards, is that done consciously or is a lot of that unconscious as well? So the assessment of the reason, so you, you have an intuition that the reason is good or not, and then you can take that assessment into consideration when deciding whether to accept the conclusion, but the, the, the causes of that assessment are obscure. You don't know why you think it's a good reason. You just, you just think it's a good reason or a bad reason. Yes, just a question about digital. I mean, we're living in an increasingly digital world, right? And uh, setting aside the idea of eco chambers that we have on the internet, but the way we communicate with each other it's, is increasingly through writing or text and so on, rather than speaking and face-to-face. -face. What impact do you think that will have on reasoning for good outcomes? So as for writing, um, I'm not sure. So in, in terms of the... Of social media and the internet and, and, and all that and the uh, eco chambers you mentioned. Uh, so clearly there's a lot of, of room there for kind of bad things to happen, for people to congregate with kind of like-minded people. Um, as far as I can tell from the literature, it's not clear this is what's happening. So um, there, are, there are now a few papers looking at whether social media and the internet more generally have, are responsible for the increased polarization we see in politics, and that does not seem to be the case. Um, and partly because, so now there is this kind of focus on the, on the potential downsides of the, of the internet for, for these kind of problems. Uh, but there are also a lot of websites. So imagine uh, maybe you know, 20 years ago, people were, they had a subscription to The Guardian. And if they wanted for once to look at, to have you know, a different point of view on things, they had to kind of buy a different newspaper. Whereas now, if you want to have a different point of view on any issue, it's very easy, it's very accessible. And likewise, social media... On the one hand, you know, you have these stories about the Facebook algorithm mostly feeding you things that you agree on, but Facebook also puts you in contact with many more people than the people you would see in your daily life, and, and so you're more likely to be actually in contact with people who disagree with you on, 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 in politics or in other issues. So on the whole, it seems as if the effects of the internet and social media have been kind of balanced in that, in that, uh, in that respect. Yes, what I was trying to focus on is the fact that we are speaking less face-to-face -face and having face-to-face -face interactions versus typing things that we might edit to each other. Um, I'm just wondering whether you think that has an impact or not. In, in I would say maybe not on reasoning directly, but, um, um, but reasoning obviously is, is only one of the mechanisms that are at play when we're interacting with other people, and clearly interacting through text or email can create problems in terms of it's harder to get to be understood, obviously, because in every day, in, you know, in face-to-face -face interaction, we have, you know, a lot of nonverbal cues that people can use to to get our meaning, and which are mostly lacking, you know, despite the emoticons, uh, that are mostly lacking uh, in uh, in, in uh, digital communication or in uh, kind of writing, and so that can make things harder. Not because it's going to be harder to argue, but 
because maybe you're you're more likely to come across as rude, uh, or you may be more likely to actually be rude because you don't, you know, you're less, you know, you don't care where the other person, you care less where the other person feels if she's not, you know, actually there. Um, so it's possible that uh, that impairs other aspects of, of communication, but I'm not sure that it would really impact um, kind of argumentation per se, especially if you have, you know, media that allow for um, immediate, you know, back and forth, like you know, messenger and these sort of things, in which you, it's pretty much like a conversation in other in these respects. You have in mind, I should have mentioned the hashtag is RSA reason if you do that kind of thing, but there you go. But, but, but very briefly, that research on the filter bubbles not being real in a sense, um, is there something, if we wanted to find that research, what should we type into Google, or is it not public yet? You no, know. it is. I mean, I just don't remember the name of it. So okay. there is a, a review paper by um, Henry Farrell, uh, I, I think in 2005, or maybe a bit later, Henry Farrell is a political scientist uh, in the U.S. Thank you. In this, in this age of post-truth age, it's very easy to bash the rationality and reasoning. Yet, it is rationality and reasoning which has brought us to this level of, of development. So I think it is necessary, it's important, that uh, we do not go overboard. And um, it will be a long discussion, so I will stop there now, except ask you this. When you say that, that question of yours uh, was answered only by 25% correctly, um, was it, were there some other factors also working, perhaps intelligence, the level of intelligence? So what's what's interesting about these problems is that um, yeah I mean if you if you take um, if you take you know MIT undergrads who have just gone through some intense math and you just give them that problem on its own you know maybe most of them will get it right um, and if you take you know um, like you know a third grader it's going to be harder but still I mean the what, what's impressive is that even if you take people who are like the group we had only two of them figured it out on their own. And then everybody got it right when they could discuss. So the main difference is not whether you're smart or not, it's whether you're kind of surrounded by smart, by smart people or not. And you can talk with them. In that example, what was more frightening is not that so many got it wrong, is that so many were certain they were right, or near certain they were right, despite having it wrong. And that does seem to reflect what we observe online when we stumble into a different echo chamber and we see people being so sure that for example, 9-11 was an inside job or that the Earth is only 6,000 years old or whatever. So what can we do to uh, break into this? Now, you said, well, if people were well motivated, they would sit down and they would take the time and then they would maybe, as in the deliberative democracy examples, they would be able to get uh, to a, a different understanding. So my question is, how can we increase that motivation? What do we need to do to make people more willing, more curious to uh, get to uh, outside their own uh, comfort on these decisions? I guess it's important to keep in mind that, um, as I was mentioning uh, quickly uh, earlier, is that all of that uh, is mostly altruistic. So when, when we pay attention to politics, when we read politicians' programs, when we make sure that you know, conspiracy theories are true or false, um, it, it has no impact on us. Usually it has very extremely... You know, so all of that is really, we're doing that because if, if everybody is interested in this and is focusing on this, our society will be vastly better. And so I think it's important to reward that kind of behavior and to, uh, and to kind of punish or you know, shame a little bit. I mean, lack of interest in politics should be... It's not irrational. You shouldn't, you, know, you, you shouldn't tell people, look, you're stupid because you're not interested in politics. I mean, it's quite rational to not be interested in politics or in, or in all of this or to have... 
I mean, people who believe that 9-11 was done by the American government, I mean, it doesn't hurt them in any way. I mean, what, you know, who cares? Um, and so it's important to not think that what they're doing is stupid, but to maybe point out that it's, it's you know, it's, it's socially bad. It's a bit like vaccination. I mean, you know, if you're in a society in which everybody vaccinates their children, not vaccinating yours is quite smart because, you know, you, you don't have any side effects and you have herd immunity. But it's morally bad. Uh, because if everybody does it, then obviously no one, uh, no one is immune. So I think by kind of stressing the social component of these things, saying, look, it's, if, you're, if, you're a, if you're a nerd and you spend a lot of time uh, you know, reading about politics, it's a good thing. You're, you're doing the world a service. Even if you're a bit annoying because you're telling everybody they're wrong, uh, <laughs> it's actually, you're actually playing a useful social role. The motivation things interest me because um, I think about this post-truth thing, I think what, something resonates there because a lot of people think the solution is, you know, teach people critical thinking skills, etc. So what you've got to focus on is their thinking skills. But actually, you seem to be suggesting that, generally speaking, we don't lack the skills. What we lack is the motivation. And that if, you've got, if you give people the incentives to find the truth collectively, they'll do it, yeah? That's very interesting. Uh, okay, let's go on. My, my question is... Um does or can intuition evolve? So I'm thinking from a, as the world becomes increasingly connected and the, the kind of intuitional rules that I had that, that worked for me really well growing up in a small town in New Zealand um, may not necessar- necessarily serve me living in you know, a multicultural place like, like London. Um, so it, yeah, and when, when we're talking about diversity and working with different kinds of people in different kinds of ways, can it get in the way when, when the reasoning is not so much mathematical and, and very binary, but more kind of things of innovation and ex- accelerating thinking and so on? It's really something that you want to look at on a case-by-case basis. So um, there are things for which it's, you know, it's quite easy for, for us to adapt, even as adults, and other things for which it's, it's much harder. Um, but clearly, as a society, we can create huge changes in our intuitions. I think the, maybe the most clear-cut example is, is reading and writing. So now we're in societies in which just about everybody can do it, even though it's a tremendously hard skill to learn, uh, it really kind of requires, you know, obviously like anything you learn, it requires kind of really parts of your, whole parts of your brain. Um, it's massive, and, and you know, everybody has managed to, has to achieve that. Um, so it, it's hard to see what, in a way, we could not achieve if we really kind of put our minds to it, in a way. I, I've done a little spate of chairing recently, and I've encountered this um, issue, which got a complaint very recently, about the number of questions for women in the audience. And I'm genuinely always looking out to try and spot people and everything. And, but time and again, you find that it's mainly the men who ask the questions, right? Now, doesn't that tell us something about... Um, are you too sanguine about the way we've... Ad- it works very well adaptively, because it seems that the default situation is you leave people to sort things out in groups. Um, it's generally men who speak more. It's the more confident people who speak more and so forth. So don't we actually have to do quite a lot of it? meddling in order to get the conditions really right, or else we're going to end up with biases about who speaks and, and who's heard and who's listened to as well. A lot of psychological research doesn't suggest, doesn't it, that um, typically, no matter how people may tick their views on, on feminism and so forth, that women don't get listened to in the same way as men. You know, I mean, my guess would be that it's, these things are rather culture-specific, and it, clearly you know, it's worse in some cultures, it's better in others. Um, there might be some maybe universal biases behind this partly, but clearly there's a lot of cultural variation, which suggests that you know, we, can, we can make things better. And um, indeed, making sure that in a group uh, all the voices are heard 
is critical because if you're if you're silencing disagreement, um, then you're you're silencing you know the possibility of getting things better. If, you know, it may be the person who is disagreeing silently is actually right, and you'll never know. Um, but I don't have a good solution for that. I mean, it's I mean what I can say is that our theory kind of gives people who defend that even more arguments because it's you know more ammunition because it it's really critical that uh, everybody can be heard and that disagreement can be aired, uh, you know, whatever the source is. Okay, so this is worth, I think it's worth making, because the evolutionary, when people have the evolutionary things, they often neglect the cultural aspect, right? But this is the evolutionary platform, but it manifests itself in a culture, and the culture will change how it works. Okay. So I was, this is a bit more of a kind of abstract question, I suppose. Uh, I'm interested in when people are convincing, similar thing, when people are convincing the whole group, uh, have you done experiments on what, how far their reasoning needs to be to convince people and whether you can actually convince people of something incorrect, but that to take over the whole group? Because it does seem sometimes like, uh, especially with things like physical theories, there's just a level where you only need to be one step beyond the, the rest of the people and then you are relatively the smartest person in the room. And then you can convince them all of that. And if you're two steps, you can go one step in the wrong direction as well. And that can be quite interesting. And maybe I just didn't see on your chart in terms of also like religious beliefs, when people, societies are convinced of a metaphysics that is not their own. Uh, it seems to be quite simple. Historically, it seems to have been quite easy. Um, the way argumentation works really is by increasing the consistency between people's beliefs. So in the case I presented... Um, people, they have, they, have, uh, they have the axioms of the problem and they have the wrong answer. And it's quite easy to show them that the wrong answer is inconsistent with the axioms of the problem and that's how you get them to change their mind. And you show them that the right answer is consistent and that's, you know, that's, how, that's how things work. Um, and you know, fortunately, um, the vast majority of our beliefs are right. Otherwise, we couldn't function in the world at all. And so that's why argumentation works on the whole, because it, it rests on a, on a solid basis of, kind of mostly accurate beliefs that you can build on. Uh, and so if you increase the consistency between mostly accurate beliefs, that you, know, you get even better things. But as you are saying, um, there are pockets of beliefs that are mostly wrong. So for instance, we have mostly wrong, like in, you know, if you don't go to school, you have mostly wrong, and even if you actually, after you've gone to school, uh, you have mostly wrong intuitions about physics, about biology, about you know, medicine, about all these things because we didn't evolve to have intuitions about you know, astronomy or you know, things like this, obviously. And so most of our intuitions are wrong. And, and then if you, if you start from a domain in which mo most intuitions are wrong and you make that more consistent, that, doesn't, that, that makes things worse. Um, and so that's how you can indeed have ideas that spread that are, if not worse, but at least you know, not any better than the preconceptions people had because you build on something on, on, on poor foundations. Um, just if I might add on the, on the, on the religious point, um, I wouldn't say that um, people have been widely successful in, in convincing people to accept kind of weird metaphysics. On the whole, if you look at, at the, the metaphysics that are sometimes very counterintuitive that are uh, offered by theologians, you find that only theologians believe in them. Um, and that even if other people uh, profess to believe in them, in the way they actually they actually think about you know, um, deities and, 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 and those sort of things, they, they think, you know, People, you know, Christians will think of, of God, you know, pretty much as, as an agent uh, who is in one place at one time, who can see only one thing at a time, rather than as this kind of you know, omnipotent, omnipresent entity that the theologians are trying to sell. So it, 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 you know, it didn't work that well. Thanks for the talk. I enjoyed that a lot. Um, in a business context, um, I can see how your two 
grid matrix works very well. However, I do come across some people who are in the, aren't conforming in the bottom left-hand corner. So <clears throat> the people who are not being completely unbiased about other people's opinions. And I wonder if you have a theory as to why that is, why you get some people who are very dogged in sticking it, their own opinions, whilst others do respond to that dialogue and move on. There are quite a few reasons why people might be reluctant to change their mind, even when faced with good arguments. But I think a common one is um, the commitments people have made to their prior opinions and the fact that they perceive that they would um, kind of lose face if they were seen as changing their mind. And so that, that brings in a social... So if, you, if you're only talking about... You know, so, so the main goal of, of our minds is to have you know, accurate beliefs. You know, if you want to behave properly in the world, adaptively, you want to you know, actually know the world how it is, as it is. Um, but then on top of that, um, there is a social dimension such that if, if people realize you were wrong and you were wrong on something you, you were really sure about, that looks bad. So there's a trade-off between you know, recognizing you are wrong and uh, actually, you know, so on the one hand, you win because you have better beliefs. On the other hand, you kind of lose because you lose face and, and people you know, think you were a fool before. And so in some cases, it's better to just say, okay, well, you know, I changed my mind. You know, I'd better, it's better to have been a fool and to not be one anymore. And, and sometimes people just say, well, no, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just going to stick to my beliefs. And I think when, when, one of the reasons for that difference might be that um, there might be asymmetries in, in, in the audiences. So if you look at politicians, for instance, um, take a politician who has uh, made it very clear that her position on something is you know, this and that. And you know, it, many people would be able to tell this is what their position is. And now they hear a very, very good argument that they should change their mind. Well, maybe on the one hand, you know, they feel, okay, so I, you know, that should make sense for me to change their mind. But then the only thing that most voters will see is that they've changed their mind. They won't know why they've changed their mind. Because it's often, you know, maybe they've read like a 50-page memo that no one else will read. And so that creates really kind of strong incentives for them to not change their mind because they can't explain to people why they have or why they should have. Uh, so, so just in the context of this election campaign where so many people have refused to admit they've changed their minds. But um, I think we tend to think we would like them to be honest. Are we wrong? Because actually... Um, we're, you know, we, we say we wouldn't want to be honest, but were they to be honest, we would just not trust them so much. Yeah, no, I, think, I think it's, like in everyday life, uh, when you're with people, you, you know, your friends, your colleagues, this kind of behavior is just annoying because you know, people would have, you know, if you change your mind, you can tell me where you change your mind, we can discuss it, and that's fine. Uh, but as I was saying, when it's politicians, the only thing you see oftentimes, if you're not really interested, is just them you know, thinking A at time T and then thinking you know, non-A at time T1. And it's like, you know, what are they doing? You know, I can't trust them. If they're going to change their mind completely, where should I put any, any, you know, any, any, any value in what they're saying? Thank you. That was actually very interesting. Um, I have a question regarding the interactionism. So interactionism is usually split into more psychologically informed interactionism and sociologically informed interactionism. And I think especially the letter focuses usually on, very heavily on situational aspects and the environment. What kind of, um, and how much does it matter in your account, in your theory? Well, it kind of depends on what, how you define the environment. But if the environment includes other people, then clearly this is critical. And, um, and in a way that's critical, not only if the other people are there, in, in, you know, the, the best is you know, if the other people are there in front of you and you can talk with them, but to some extent, you can internalize um, an audience. Um, so one of the examples we, we discuss in the book is, is Newton. 
And so Newton, uh, he, he made his, his more, most important discoveries uh, pretty much when he was on, on his own in, in Cambridge. And, but, but the argument we're making, and you know, other kind of historians of science, obviously, have made before, is that um, he pretty much knew his audience. He knew the members of the Royal Society. He would have to convince. And that is what uh, forced him to create such strong arguments as the one in the, in the Principia Mathematica, for instance, and to do the experiments, because he knew it would, like, there would be a very high threshold to convince them. And by contrast, if you look at his work in, in alchemy or in theology, uh, so especially in alchemy, because it was secret, so he, he really did not want anybody to read it. And uh, so I'm not like you know, I, I'm not a connoisseur of alchemy really, but it doesn't seem to be making much sense. And clearly, you know, it didn't stick, and it didn't have the same persuasive power than you know, the, his his work in, in physics had. Uh, and I think it's because it just didn't have. So even in, even though in both cases he was working largely in isolation, like in physical isolation, in his mind, in one case he had like this extremely critical, intelligent audience. Uh, and in the other case, he just had no one in mind at all, and, and so his, you know, his brilliant intelligence just kind of floundered. Yeah, I mean, that is um, all we've got time for. Now, if, you, if you're one of the many people who thinks that Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow is a central reading, I would suggest to you that this is as a central reading, particularly if you have read that. It really is balanced. But anyway, thank you so much for coming today. Thanks for your questions. And join me finally in thanking Hugo Mercier. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, thersa.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.